Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome to Evening Dhamma. Oh, I've forgotten to change the... forgot about the YouTube thing. I can still change it after the fact. Tonight we are studying the Mahadukkha Kandha Sutta. Majjhima Nikaya number 13. If you're interested, and you should be interested, it's a it's a good it's a good sutta to read. If you're picky and choosy, if you're not going to read the whole of the Majjhima Nikaya, which of course you should all do, um, but if you don't have the time or you want to start somewhere, I'm picking out the ones that I think are especially relevant to a a broad audience. We've skipped the Satipatthana Sutta, so don't skip that one, but we skipped it because I've already done recently a set of talks on it. So besides that one, I feel like I'm hitting the highlights. Mahadukkha Kanda Sutta, it's a good, good title. The discourse on the great, on the, no, no, he doesn't translate. The discourse on the greater mass of suffering. Or the great discourse No, he's right The greater discourse on the mass of suffering I guess then, I think 14 is the Chula Dukkha Kanda Sutta Is, it? is there one? Yeah, there is Right, so this is the big one the next one's going to be more brief it Sounds quite ominous This is the big talk On the mass of suffering Dukkha Kanda The mass of suffering cheery subject, right? So Buddhism gets a rap for being obsessed with suffering. It's quite unique in that way from a European or even an East Asian perspective, I think. Maybe not from an Indian perspective. Um, so the sutta starts um, a bunch of monks went into Sawati for alms and well it was too early so they decided to go and visit the wanderers of other sects of other people who belong to other dispensations which is quite remarkable really it's sort of a multi what we would the equivalent of a um, multi-faith talk or multi or interreligious dialogue it was a big thing because in India it wasn't so much that there were the big R religions or the big you know, name religions. There were teachers and they all taught different things. And so I think Buddhism stands out along with Jainism as sort of um, its own being its own microcosm. But the people who would come to the Buddha and, and the atmosphere in India was kind of going to all sorts of teachers, right? That's, that's what we get out of the texts that we have. So there were lots of different teachers teaching various things. And so going from one teacher to another and, well, in this case, talking with other people from other religions wasn't so much like an interreligious dialogue as it was... You know, talking to 
fellow seekers on the path, I think. Of course, there was, I guess, a sense that these guys had it all wrong because uh, the, these were bhikkhus, we're talking about the monks, but I don't think it was as strong as saying, hey, I'm Buddhist and you're Hindu or something like that. No? It was like, well, we follow this teacher, you follow that teacher. Let's go and see what, what they say. Let's go and learn another perspective. I mean, it, it kind of opens up the door for Buddhists to study other religions. And I think really everyone, to some extent, should study other religions. Not because they... Not because Buddhism is lacking anything, or that because you because you might doubt Buddhism and think, hey, maybe that religion's better. But for people who are actually committed to Buddhism, it's quite useful to study other religions. It helps you understand your own uh, religion. It helps uh, test you, your knowledge, your confidence, your um, well, your wisdom your ability to discern good from bad, right from wrong. It broadens your horizons and helps you see it's not so much about Buddhist truth as it is about truth. And wherever truth is found, you can consider it truth. So anyway, these monks went to see these other recluses, and the recluses said some, say something that's quite interesting. They say the Buddha, well, Gotama, this guy Gotama, who we know as the Buddha, he describes the full understanding of sensual pleasures and material form and feeling. And so do we. Uh, and the word is panyapeti, which I don't know it really means describe. Let's see. Yeah, causes other people to know. So he he proclaims or he... He pushes, this is what he has to um, make established. So he sets up this as a, uh, as a, a principle. The full understanding of sensual pleasures, the full understanding of material form, and the full understanding of feeling. And we do, we do too, they say. We do this very same thing. So what is the distinction, what is the difference between our teaching and the, the Buddha's teaching, the Gautama's teaching? And the monks neither approved or disapproved of this. They didn't really know what to say, it seems. And so they went back and told the Buddha, and the Buddha told, explained to them what the response should be. Before we get into the response, and that's of course the main body of the sutta, I, I just want to stop and, and appreciate the milieu that was clearly surrounding, or seems to be surrounding the Buddha. Let's you know we only have this, we only have uh, these sources, Buddhist sources, Jain sources, the Upanishads, that sort of thing, um, to paint a picture of what was actually going on. But assuming this is what was going on, it, it, and and re well, regardless, I mean, looking at the text that we have extant, this kind of question or this kind of debate is, I think, relatively unique. And I, I want to stress this because it's it's easy to uh, 
make the mistake that religions are basically the same. Now we don't want to harp on how 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 you know our our religion is superior or it's the only religion, but to be really clear, um, there are very different types of what we might call religion in the world. And you might, as an anthropologist, look at similar aspects. And anthropology does, I think, a really good job at messing things up by focusing very much on what ordinary people do. And while that's quite interesting, it, it kind of messes up messes things up for religion because religion isn't really about what ordinary people do. Religion tends to be quite difficult and require a lot of devotion. And so most people who follow a religion aren't actually very good practitioners of that religion. So if you look at the, the you know the candles that people light and the statues that people worship, you're not looking at Buddhism, obviously, right? And the same can, I think, be said of most religions. And when you look at it, you say, well, they're all the same because Christianity lights candles, Buddhists light candles, Christians do chanting, Buddhists do chanting. But as a Buddhist monk, when people compare Christianity and Buddhism, it's quite hard to maintain composure. Well, it's it, it twigs something inside because it's, 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 it's not nearly the truth. Who in the world, in the time of the Buddha, was asking questions like this? Certainly Jesus Christ wasn't. Um, and we can go through the list. Was, um, let's say, Lao Tzu. Was he talking about these things? Uh, not really. Uh, what about... Uh, well, Muhammad came later, but okay, look at Muhammad. Is he... so? We have this this phenomenon of religion that seems to capture people, uh, and and it has this this essence no matter what kind of religion it is. But that has nothing to do with the actual content of the religion. And I guess what I really want to stress is uh, how I think special, from a Buddhist perspective, this time in India was that people were looking at the world in a very specific way. You know, I mean, just to, just to say this, to to put your focus not on God or on uh, heaven or on even goodness and evil, but the full understanding of sen of desire, material form, and feeling. I mean, it's quite foreign. It should be quite foreign to people who are familiar with other religions because this isn't the sort of thing that you would expect as a religious practice it's the kind of thing that we see now in, in, in various sorts of therapy and even some philosophy I mean I think the closest might well not the closest but I think um, it's interesting to look at what the Greeks were doing but even the Greeks the Greeks and the Romans I mean yeah they talked some about virtue and, and about knowing yourself and that kind of thing um, but still quite a different feel to it and there was none of this systematic not as far as I've studied I'm sure people are going to tell me you know things like well there were Christian mystics and there were um, you know, Muslim mystics and there are the Sikhs and, and of course there's East Asian mystics and so on 
then there's the aboriginal shamans and so on and it's not to say that I mean anyone can of course practice in this this sort of spiritual way of uh, or this way of studying the the nature of the mind but here we're talking about we're talking about religious leaders um, promoting this as their religion anyway not to harp too much on it but um, I think it's quite interesting that this uh, it's important to understand the sort of religion that we're talking about when we talk about Buddhism and, and the religions of India nonetheless the Buddha is not having it he says that well these guys are they talk a good game but you should ask them three questions and these three things are I think quite interesting and pertinent for us as meditators the first one is what is the gratification what is the danger and what is the escape the gratification, the danger, and the escape in regards to these three things. So what is the, what is the gratification of sensual desire um, or sensual pleasure? What is the sensual sensual sensuality, really? What is the danger and what is the, the escape from sensuality? What is the gratification of form? What is the danger in form and what is the escape? And the same with feelings. And he says they won't be able to answer. And he's gonna and and he says, let me teach you this framework. What is the gratification, the danger, and the escape? So first, let, let's break this down. When we talk about these three aspects of experience, which is what they really are. We're, we're, we're focusing in on the process or the aspects of the process of craving, of clinging, of desire, of, you know, suffering, really. Remember, this is the discourse about suffering. And these three things are understood and, and again not just by the Buddha but in this sort of milieu in this 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 environment that the Buddha found himself in this was the sort of thing that remarkably a lot of people were talking about it seems that craving was the cause of suffering that it was this thirst this desire this this ambition striving for things that couldn't satisfy us And I think it's quite remarkable that this was the focus, that the focus wasn't on some sort of uh, nebulous or, or theoretical goal. It was on a very real and visceral problem or, or way of looking at the problem. Because any other goal that you might have or, or ambition or, or belief it's all going to be for the purpose of finding happiness or peace which is of course the escape from suffering
So what are the three? The three are sensuality. Sensuality refers to, and the Buddha goes through this, it goes through it. The sensuality is our, um, our desire. And the desire, it's the desire for sights, the desire for sounds, the desire for tastes and smells. It's the actual uh, liking of things, you know, having partiality, having um, having favorites, something that you like, something that you dislike. Uh, form form is the object of the liking so form is a beautiful body or a beautiful flower or it's a beautiful sound or it's a, it's a nice smell it's even comfortable soft f touches it's the uh, the physical aspect oh yeah I caught a mosquito Well, it'll last. If it doesn't bite me and give me West Nile virus, it'll be okay. And the third one, feeling. Feeling is the um, the pleasure, the, the, the pleasurable feeling. And if it sounds like these are very much related, I mean, they really are. What the Buddha is doing is he's pulling apart a, really a single process the process of the experience of craving. There are three, at least three aspects. I would add a fourth in here, and that's the thoughts. It's not really a part of the process, but it's important. What you think about things, and, and as a result, your views about things, you know, that really has an impact on the process, but it's not directly a part, so it's not, a, it's not wrong that it was not included here. Um, but these three definitely are important. If anyone's concerned about addiction, people ask questions about addiction, and we all have addictions. I mean, this is this is the practice that frees us from them. I mean, this specifically is how we attack an addiction, basic, basing our practice around these three things. So, what's the gratification of sensual uh, pleasures? And the Buddha says, well, when you, uh, when you like things, when you want things, you get what you want. That's the gratification. You want pizza, you get pizza. You want, uh, you want music, you turn on music. You want nice smells, you wear perfume or cologne, use air freshener, all of these things. You can get what you want, and that's what we do. That's gratification. To point, so and point, I'd like to point out something that's actually quite important about uh, the gratification. It's that uh, simply acknowledging the gratification, I think, is groundbreaking, right? Often our approach towards addiction, say, is about the cure. It's um, a, an ingrained conceiving of the addiction as something bad. Which, you know, it is bad, but the, the conceiving of it, of it as something bad is a negative. It's a 
kind of a fear or an aversion to it. Acknowledging the gratification is to acknowledge what's deeply rooted in the mind, and that's the belief that this is a good thing, right? And it's like therapy, you have to acknowledge And this is why a big part of our practice is simply acknowledging all the bad stuff And acknowledging it objectively, without judgment You don't have to say, hey, this is, this is bad How can I get rid of this or this? And, and this is a, a mistake that, that people make, of course Is to hate themselves and hate their addictions And... Um, really cultivate a great amount of aversion towards something that they don't even believe because deeply in the mind they believe that the things that they're addicted to are good are going to make them happy it's not just physical the addiction is based on a deep-rooted conception that something is stable satisfying or controllable or all the all the three And so our first, the first part of our practice is really um, about being mindful about the gratification, about the good side of these three things. The danger, though, um, is not something that we should understand intellectually. It's something that we start to see as we observe. And we say, okay, so objectively we will, we will look at this. Yes, there is this gratification. And you, know, you don't have to hate it because the theory is that it's not actually gratifying. The gratification is not actually satisfying, right? The result is not actually satisfactory. It's, and this is because there is a danger that you will start to see. So he goes on, and, and it's really worth reading. I won't go into great detail, but he talks at some length about the dangers. You know, if you want all these things, then you've got to work for them. And just working for them, you know, you've got to face mosquitoes to go off and work. You've got to face the heat and the cold. You've got to face a boss who yells at you. And then if you don't succeed, if your work isn't fruitful, you there's always this great fear, especially with if you're self-employed and or if you're if you're employed and then you get fired. There's always this constant fear and this danger, and it's really a potential danger. You can be fired, laid off, you can, uh, you can not succeed in your business, and uh, you work so hard for things and then you don't get them. And it's a great suffering that comes, of course, from not getting what you want. Uh, if you, and once you get the things that you want, well, then you have to protect them. So you get this nice house and then it gets hit by a hurricane or earthquake Or you get all these nice things and then you have to worry about locking your doors because you have all these valuables I, I think a lot of people who are convinced that sensuality materiality is a cause for suffering or a cause sorry a cause for happiness are convinced because of how they see the happiness in others and they tend to generally think that there's just something wrong with them that they can't uh, be happy I mean I do know some people who are just very happy with 
sensuality. But by and large, they tend to incline towards simple pleasures. And uh, you'll see with time, you know, if you look at older people, they tend to be much more inclined to more, to less to sensuality, right? Because over time it starts to wear away the, the goodness, the happiness. And they've seen this. Have you lived your life and seeing the dangers again and again? Of course, through meditation, this process is accelerated. If you meditate intently enough, you can see firsthand the nature of addiction. You want something, you don't get it, it's stressful. You get what you don't want, it's stressful. Through meditation, you see how messed up the mind really is. And it's not able to sit still, it's not able to just be it's it's a slave to craving. The escape in all three of these cases is the same. It's the removal of desire and lust for these three things. But what's interesting here is this is actually talking about this first one. It's talking about the removal of um, desire and lust for the desire really for the liking of things so we actually get attached to our likings we think it's good to like things or we have our partialities and this is a great fear of medi beginner meditators is that Buddhism talks about letting go of of everything you know, well, what about all these things that I like my uh, what about all my possessions and all the good things, music, you want me to give up music? Uh, what a horrific thought, that kind of thing. But Buddhism doesn't. It um, doesn't talk about giving up things that you want. It talks about looking at the things you want and understanding them and seeing the danger. Once you see the danger, then you, of course, are able to escape from it just by virtue of seeing the danger and understanding that it's not worth it. Material form, the second one. So the gratification relates to, it's very similar to the first one, but here specifically talking about the object of your desires. So we get attached to objects, people, places, things, objects, materiality. And he gives the example of a, a beautiful woman. He's again probably talking to mostly men here. His, his audience might have been completely men. And he says, imagine there were a girl of the noble or Brahmin class. And he, ta he describes her. Fair, nor dark, not dark, nor too fair, not thin, nor fat. Beautiful, basically. And he says the, the the joy and gratification, the pleasure and joy that arise in dependence on that beauty, or take a beautiful flower, or a beautiful smell, or good music, beautiful sounds. This is the gratification. The Buddha doesn't deny this. He doesn't say bad, bad, wrong, wrong. He accepts that there is gratification. What he doesn't accept is that it, it it's in any way satisfying or gratifying really um, because this is th these moments 
do little more than to serve to stoke our desire they don't actually satisfy again it's like a dog with a bone a dog can never be satiated from chewing on a blood smeared bone it's even worse than that because there's the addiction that's associated with it and you're cultivating the habit of of, of wanting And he says, what's the danger? Well, in this instance, he talks about, well, what about the, when this woman gets very old and when she's dying, lying fouled in her own urine and excrement, the beauty has vanished. For flowers, the beauty vanishes. Everything has its um, vanishing as a, a danger, the change as a danger. And it relates to our desire, right? When you desire something, when you like something, when you want something, it all comes crashing down when things change. I mean, it, it, this goes on throughout our lives. During the times when you can't have what you want, there's stress, there's suffering, there's boredom, there's frustration, there's displeasure. Just having to sit through this talk in many ways is difficult because we would rather be doing something else even though we, we might want to hear the Buddha's teaching it's still not easy because our minds are jumping and saying hey, hey remember, remember those things that we liked this is what desire does And the third one, feelings. Now feelings here is quite interesting and it makes this sutta interesting in another way because it talks about the jhanas, the samatha jhanas and many people are interested in these as a part of the Buddhist path. And he here he's, very, he's probably the most critical he ever is about these things. I mean mostly he talks about them in, with praise but here he's dealing with apparently people from other sects who were practicing the jhanas, other religious uh, practitioners who were practicing and, and entering into the various types of trance and absorption. And again, the Buddha uh, acknowledges that this is the highest form of feeling. And there are many types of feelings, and with any addiction there's going to be pleasure or there's going to be calm that comes from, from obtaining the object of your desire. But uh, it's curious that he includes the jhanas in here. Because remember in the Salaika Sutta, people he says, well, people think this is, this is effacement. This is the way to root out your defilements, to enter into the jhanas. But it's not true. It's a happy state here and now. And that's, that's a good thing. Uh, but even that can be desired, of course. Many people desire and they hear about the jhanas and they want to practice them much more than they want to practice vipassana. It's always going through their minds. Why am I doing this again? Well, maybe 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 samatha is better for me because they hear about samatha and it sounds so wonderful. And it is wonderful. It's a gratification. But he says the problem with feelings, and here he's including the jhanas, is that they're impermanent, unsatisfying, and subject to change. They're not self. They have no 
entity to them. And they come and they go. So you can practice meditation that's quite comfortable, quite pleasing. And if your meditation is quite pleasing, well, great, good for you. But it's not actually satisfying. There's, there's not anything that comes from it. I mean, think with all three of these, the thing that we have to ask ourselves is, what comes of it? What, what, what good is it? And we often fail to do this in regards to sensuality. We, rather than having a, co a coherent or a, a cogent, um, I don't know, a clear picture, hey, this is good for me, and, and hey, this is a good thing, we're just stuck. And this is how an addict is. The addict usually knows that they're addicted and uh, is just powerless to get out of it. And so some deep, this deep and, and clear awareness that uh, these things that we're clinging to are not any good. I mean, what's worst is when people cultivate the view that these things are good and beneficial. Most of us are able to go meandering through, through life, sometimes getting what we want, sometimes not getting what we want, and being content with that to an extent, you know telling ourselves that this is as good as it gets right? sometimes good, sometimes bad well, that's life, right? other people are more ambitious and they try to root out all the bad and just always get what they want those are the people who are really um, desperate now, that's uh, the worst, of course because it cultivates very strong states of addiction drug addicts and that sort of thing but for most of us um we kind of muddle through life not clearly and, and I think that's who this teaching is most useful for because this clearly paints a picture of what's going on in our lives these lives that we think are just fine are really not uh, they're really not satisfying and meditation shows you that if you, dis if you don't believe me if you think oh life is fine and what's wrong with enjoying things try meditating for a while practice meditation I mean, I think a lot of people approach meditation and are not able to continue because it forces them to see the nature of their minds and they just blame the meditation and say, oh, it's too much work, it's not very much fun and that sort of thing. But you really can't deny it. I mean, um, you may be too weak to practice meditation, but it's very hard to deny that what it's showing you is the nature of your own mind as being weak as being addicted and a slave to craving. That's about all. That's um, it's a simple sutta, but it's definitely worth reading. If you have time, read through it and get a deeper understanding of it than what I've just talked about. But hopefully this has been a little bit of a... Um, sort of a, a fleshing out of the sutta or, or a commentary on it that allows it to to um, resonate with us as meditators again focusing on these things I mean it's 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 really describing the four satipatthana so we have the form when you're addicted to something there's the visual right you see something and you in mind with mindfulness you note the seeing you note that you're seeing something there's the feelings the the, the pleasure and seeing beautiful things, the feeling that comes up. 
and so you note the feeling there's the liking of it and so you note the liking even noting the liking liking is addictive it's habit forming and so the fourth one is the thoughts I would argue that you also have to be careful about how you think about things and how your thoughts will lead you to or will reinforce your addiction And again, it's not about hating these things, it's about understanding them. You understand the gratification. When you like something, don't be so hard on yourself. Look at that liking, study it. Objectively, not thinking, how can I get rid of this? But thinking, what's it like? You'll see the danger, you'll see the bad side, the negative side. Even of the jhanas, the samatha jhanas, you study them mindfully. The feeling of being in the jhanas, you be mindful of it. And by study, it means be mindful, you know, cultivate sati. About the jhanas, you'll see. Yeah, they're impermanent, unsatisfying, and uncontrollable. Not me, not mine, not myself, not the goal, not freedom from suffering. So there you go. That's the Dhamma for tonight. Thank you all for tuning in. I gotta go put a mosquito outside.